Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. So, hello everybody. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Rance Wagenberg, historian of Japan at Penn State. Today I'll be talking to Jennifer Weisenfeld about her book, Gas Mask Nation, Visualizing Civil Air Defense in Wartime Japan, which came out with Chicago uh, University of Chicago Press earlier this year. With me today also is Dr. Sheldon Gowron, a historian of Japan at Princeton, who, besides many accomplishments, has been researching the global history of civil defense and terror bombing during World War II, and has published widely on the topic. Both Professor Gowron and I are taking part at a research group on globalizing the history of world wars, uh, organized by Bruno uh, Cabanas at Ohio State, where we both tackled the bombing of Japan, and we were both thrilled to learn about this new book, which shed new light and showed new angles and connections we were not aware of before. Even before this book, I learned much from uh, Jennifer Weisenfeld's work on earthquakes, propaganda, modernism, and many other topics in Japanese modern art history. And I'm thrilled to have her and Sheldon Garon here today with me. So, hello, both of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. So, uh, Jennifer, if you don't mind me uh, using your first name, uh, maybe I'll just start with asking you what brought you to this story. And can you tell more about your own background, how it led to this book? Sure. Um, Thank you. I'm I'm really thrilled to discuss my work with both of you since there are so many resonances between our research. Um, And as you mentioned, I'm an art historian and I specialize in modern Japan and I'm just perennially fascinated by the early 20th century, particularly the 1920s and 30s in Japan, when Japan became a major world power and a cosmopolitan hub in East Asia. A lot of people still don't think of it that way, but I I really think that that cosmopolitanism is very important. Um, And throughout my career, I've been trying to expand the boundaries of the kinds of visual objects and images that we study in art history beyond fine art to think about visual culture more broadly, um, because people exist in media environments and individuals producing images, uh, fine artists included, are often in dialogue with other types of producers. And we really need to think about them and not isolate them from the larger trends that are happening. Uh, I've come to call this 360 degree art history. And and, uh, I don't know if that aptly expresses it, but I I like this idea of kind of really looking around the producer 
um, and also to focus on the multi-sensory nature of creative expression, uh, how visual images in, and other types of um, cultural production engage other senses. Uh, but specifically in terms of this uh, this project, it started with one photograph. Um, as many of my projects do, they start with something that piques my curiosity, and it was the photograph by Horino Masao of the schoolgirls marching in Ginza in 1936 wearing gas masks, which I was very happy uh, could be on the on the cover of the book. And and this image just uh, continues to fascinate me. Um, it it just brought up a whole range of questions. Not only why we're schoolgirls marching in gas masks in the Ginza well before, um, certainly well before air raids destroyed uh, Japan's major cities, but even before the beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, and uh, I hope we can come back to this image because I'd really like to talk about it in more um, in more detail. But I also, at the same time, was working on a project in commercial advertising and looking at the ways in which commercial um, uh, companies were producing advertising that was increasingly in line or aligning with state objectives and wartime mobilization. So it was both that image uh, of the schoolgirls and thinking about mass culture and the dissemination of air defense and Hurino's work as a modernist, and then this other separate project um, where I was studying uh, manufacturers like Morinaga who were producing air defense sales and trying to sell air defense along with their um, with their products. So these were the two things that kind of culminated and um, coalesced into thinking about this book. Thank you. And I do want to go back to this picture. It's amazing on, on the cover. It's really, really captivating. Uh, we have with us also uh, Shil Garen here. Uh, hi, Shil. Hi. Uh, well, this is a good segue, and uh, congratulations, Jennifer, on just a wonderful book. Uh, so my, my question picks up on, on, on Ron's first question and on your answer, and I really like your, your depiction of what you're doing is 360 degrees, because in a sense, that's what you're doing not simply within Japan, but you're thinking very globally. Uh, and so this is a book that, that I would describe as really a masterpiece in its depiction of transnational and global circulation of cultural messages and also practices on air defense. Uh, so as you know, most histories, cultural histories of home front or wartime society tend to be very nation-centered, iconic, even nationalistic. Uh, there are some efforts among European historians to tell a more transnational story, uh, but even that story tends to be rather Eurocentric. Uh, instead, you have done something truly global, uh, you have added a major part of the globe that really has not been very well integrated into global history or global cultural history uh, by covering Japan, a uh, major uh, component, obviously, of the Second World War and yet very much neglected. So the question is, though, for you, um, as a global historian, if you don't mind me calling you that, uh, that do you see yourself as uh, as merely having covered another part of the world or included something that hasn't been done? Or do you see by the inclusion of Japan that in some ways you may contribute to how other historians, let's say in the Eurocentric core, if you want to call it that, how, how those other historians um, rethink their own cases and maybe enrich their own analysis? 
Absolutely. And thank you. First of all, I want to say that's a tremendous compliment. I really appreciate that. And and I do uh, embrace that idea of the global very much. Uh, and I think of it as this concept, this this concept of transnationalism is not unidirectional. It's multinodal. It's a system in which nations were learning from each other. And there's not just one source and one target, but um, a, a movement, especially with mass culture and mass media, things are moving on a global highway in real time. And I know, Shell, you've proposed this framework of transnational learning, and I wholly subscribe to that model. I, I really think in this era, we have to think about um, the way in which images are circulating in that way. And I've never really understood why Japan is always considered in isolation from its interlocutors. It's so clear to me that the Japanese at the time, uh, certainly the urban intelligentsia, saw themselves as world citizens and did everything they could to stay in dialogue with their counterparts around the globe. Um, but air defense, it's its unequivocally true that this was a transnational movement uh, that was shared uh, with technology and concerns around the world. Um, and it started with World War One, as that spread with aviation warfare. Um, the Japanese were in conversation, and not only with their allies, but with their enemies as well. And thinking through all of these new types of um, all of these new types of technologies. And what really struck me was how many times, say, popular mechanics in the U.S. or even Die Sirena in Germany were talking about Japan's mobilization and saying, "Look, Japan is ready." Uh, so it's not just this kind of followership model. It's it's very much Japan. Uh, getting prepared in real time or even ahead of the curve uh, among its um, cohort. Um, and I also, uh, the, I think one of the main contributions of the book, and you, you asked about uh, what it contributes, I don't see it as simply covering, um, but I do think it does make us rethink the standard interpretation of Japan's wartime experience, uh, again, as this one of relentless privation and subjugation, which I think is very one-dimensional and doesn't really get at the ways in which war around the world had its allures and thrills as well as alarms and threats. And I kind of play with those two dynamics there. And those, those fed into wartime culture. They were enticements around the world. Um, and that, that really led me to that main argument of the book about pleasure and pain. The, the, the connection of within anxious pleasure, that it's rooted in that, um, but also that the inception of civil air defense was rooted in mass culture and continued to stay rooted in mass culture in a really important way. Um, and so I do think the Japanese example contributes to our understanding of global air defense in thinking more about the relationship between wartime mobilization, mass media, consumer culture, how people are uh, how images and culture mediates those kinds of messages and entices people into participation and that they have their, their deep roots in the allures of modernity and aesthetics, spectacle, entertainment, modern technology, all of those things uh, had their allures that persisted through wartime and even the consumption of candy. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there were productions of pleasure as well as pain. 
Uh, Jennifer, if you don't mind, uh, Ron has uh, signaled to me that I can jump to uh, my question and he'll, <laughs> yeah, he'll come just, in after I just want to make a small, like a, small, a small comment there before we jump to yours, because you basically answered my last que- my next question about, <laughs> about the image, but I just uh, want to say how much this, when you talk about globalization, the, the visuals are very important, right? And I think you make this point also. I'm teaching a history of fascism now and using Julia Thomas and, and Goffoli, uh, wonderful uh, volume about uh, visualizing fascism, I think is, and they make a very, very a good example that the portable uh, quality of images, right, that you can see them circulating around the world, right, that go beyond language and uh, they circulate from modern media. This is, I think you, you make a very good point and kind of Build, uh, building in on working with the same argument like fascism we can also see for civil defense here as well well exactly and i'm a comparativist as well and i teach a class across the axis powers and that's really what alerted me to so much of these traveling motifs and similarities again not just italy germany and Japan, but France, um, the Soviet Union. Um, One thing I did want to say about the Horino image was that it made me think about the multi-layered nature so much of, of, of this idea of the gas mask as both a prosthetic that's is a protective technology, but also monstrously transforms the human face into this kind of mechanistic, robotic, almost automaton-like figure. But at the same time, there's a lot of discussion about the enticements of the grotesque and monsters. And I always remind people that 1930, 31, 32, 33, this is the age of the Hollywood monster movie. This is when science fiction was at its height of selling frightening villains um, uh, with scientific superpowers that were going to destroy the world. So there's a lot of mixing of the war of the future, the grotesqueness of monsters and technology, and this kind of post-apocalyptic notion of, of human beings in these in these fantasy worlds that I, I think come together in Japanese visual culture really clearly. Yeah, in, indeed. So if, if, I, if we can go back a little bit to this question of how do we understand the wartime state and society, and both of you mentioned fascism, uh, as you probably know, I have some skepticism of that as a descriptive uh, 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 quality of, of Japan during this period for the very reason that Jennifer just brought up. Uh, she mentioned France, the Soviet Union, popular mechanics in America, things going on in Britain. It sounds like it's a little more expansive than fascism, uh, even if fascism is included in it. Uh, And so I do wonder, uh, and this is a sort of uncomfortable question, if you're showing that there is a fair amount of pleasure as well as pain in wartime Japan, that's not our usual image of wartime Japan, either from the people who talk about fascism or kind of the older American version, this Orientalist version of of Tojo and a Bushido-like regime. So if you're questioning that, then what is wartime Japan? Is it is it just like a normal total war regime, like France, like America, like Britain? Uh, or are you seeing something more pathological? So this is a big question, maybe beyond the book, and yet the book is so inspirational in thinking about this. 
It's a great question and, and very important. And, and I know this goes against some of that kind of conventional wisdom of the way people have seen the, the wartime years and, and thinking about it. But I, I do take a cue from new work and new tides like Ben Uchiyama and um, even Mark Driscoll's work on erotic grotesque nonsense and Miriam Silverberg for, uh, for years, thinking about the complexity of wartime uh, participation and, it, and the complicity of the population. And I think that's something that's happening across. It's not simply enough to just talk about propaganda and coercion, but to to dig in. And in some ways, it reduces the humanity of the Japanese population to not see them uh, having some um, autonomy in their own decisions, even within this larger regime. Um, there, there were reasons why they participated. And so we kind of have to look at the gratifications that were built into uh, sacrifice, cultures of sacrifice as well. It's the same thing with Italy, uh, you know, the shrines to martyrs and the ways the cult of death was um, enshrined. And there, there are many ways in which war itself is, is just... Um, enfolded into the culture of modernity and it is is the ultimate kind of culmination of modernity itself so i i, I worry too much about the one-dimensional prop simply propaganda simply um you know people just followed uh, without um thinking through these things it, it, it seems to have deeper roots to me in mass culture and in the fetishes of technology that we laud at the same time as we denigrate when we talk about war. Um, and, the, and the airplane is a great example of that. And I, I could talk about that afterwards, but, but I, I agree with you. And, and I do think fet- fascism is too limited a term. I mean, it's many people wouldn't even call Nazism fascism. So when we, when we pull those terms apart, they do fall apart very, very quickly. Um, but I do think um, this comparative approach gives us a lot more room to think about why people participated in these things that seem so aberrant to us. You don't mind, Ron, if I follow no, up no, with another ahead. question? Yes, okay, so it's a, a somewhat different question. Uh, it has a relation, but it's different. Uh, and it's really about some of the themes you just talked about. Uh, culture, let's say, versus practice, or propaganda versus practice. Uh, so your book is, is, is heavily about cultural production. And it's, I mean, it's fantastic in that respect. Uh, it's less, I, I'm sure you would agree, it's less uh, about popular reception of the messages. Uh, that, that simply wasn't your focus. Uh, you show that the Japanese public were very much engaged with the images of air defense, and I'm totally persuaded by that. Uh, you also suggest they're not necessarily that engaged by the practical demands of civil defense. In other words, having to drill day after day, and it's kind of monotonous because Japan doesn't get significantly bombed, as we know, until the last year of the war. So there's all this kind of mundane practice. It's not so clear that people are as enthusiastic about that as they are about the air shows and going to the ex- exhibitions. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the impact of these messages on actual civil defense when the bombers came. Uh, You have a line toward the end of your book uh, where you said, uh, nothing in the years of the messages on civil defense mitigated the catastrophic bombings in 1945. 
I, I don't know if I would say nothing. I understand what you're trying to say, but um, I think you also mentioned duck and cover. And so we get this whole thing is all these messages, are they totally useless when the bombers come? How would you respond? Well, you're absolutely right. I do focus a lot on production, um, and I, but I do try to get at the complicated question of reception uh, through popular exhibitions and attendance. And as you said, mass culture trends like participation in drills, a fandom, how people um, collected things and were part of those activities and why they um what material culture circulated in that. And we see a lot of those, those kinds of things, even in the domestic sphere, how it changes the, um, the ways people uh, decorate their homes or darken their homes or change the way they think about um, the domestic sphere in general. Uh, and I try to cover a, a series of major air defense drill exercises that engage millions of people. So there is some implication there of, of reception. Um, and but I think uh, one thing that I do think is really important is to understand this as a distinct time period apart from the air raids, um, a 15, almost over a decade's worth of time dedicated to this and trying to keep people engaged over that long period of time was important. Also, it was really important. It was a great challenge in trying to create an air defense mindset. How do you inculcate a proper and changing, evolving air defense mindset where citizens would automatically know what to do. What were the protective actions? Um, early in the in this process, gas masks were central. Later on, they realized it's probably not going to be a gas war. It's probably going to be an incendiary war. And yet gas masks still persist in these um, the panoply of objects that people are, are using. There's a lot of fluidity and we can't retrospectively see it through the lens of what happened. We need to see it kind of evolving over time. And, and the popular slogan, I was very much taken with this popular slogan, air raid, water, gas mask, light switch, turn off the lights. Those four actions, how to make those automatic in the popular mind and how to visualize them. And it was really uh, it's a kind of visual training, if you will. And that was really, it was really important. The production was really important in inculcating that mindset across the populace. It's, it's not a given that they would even know what to do. Um, and so design was a really important mediator for that. But it is important, again, speaking about this longer rooted history to remember it, and you've written a lot about this, about rationalization movements earlier on, that there's plenty of of mobilization going on in hygiene and across the board. Uh, and that's why you know, I've done a lot of work on soap. You know, I've, I've worked on cow soap. And so even thinking about soap as a commodity and how that gets um, pulled into broad-based social mobilization for hygiene, we really understand now how a soap manufacturer then moves into uh, air defense and other types of mobilization movements. And, um, and we can really see it on a kind of consumer to consumer basis and, and see it rooted more in that kind of consumer culture. Um, I, I would just say in terms of mitigating catastrophe, London, other European cities, I mean, they knew they, they were also scrambling to protect people and experienced huge devastation too, because there really wasn't an effective preventative short of just um, evacuating people. Uh, 
to uh, this kind of urban carpet bombing. It, it was really, there's really not a lot you could do at the time to prevent that. And and so I think that's the the, the big issue here was to prepare people uh, to save themselves, but also uh, there wasn't really a lot that they could do with the, the current technologies. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I was also very interested in this because I remember for, for my last book, I read, I think, Kari Caracas, so I don't know where maybe Nakao, since I did, like, people reading Juza Uno, like, fantasies about air raids while the air raids were going, it was serialized. So there's this kind of cognitive dissonance <laughs> about this. I wonder if it really, the belief in wonder weapons and all this stuff was maybe connected to those fantasies that uh, are depicted. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And at a certain point, they did stop Uno Juza from writing some of those things because he, they were so doomsday um, centered. They, there wasn't a lot of a lot of people choking to death on gas. And um, uh, I think they, they it might have tipped the balance towards chaos and fear. And, and there's always that careful balance between motivating and mobilizing people and immobilizing them with fear. Uh, and and that's that's something the authorities were were constantly kind of trying to recalibrate. But they needed to keep people engaged because as the war went on and the bombings didn't come, uh, people uh, they do do kind of get drill fatigue. They get war fatigue. There's a lot of fatigue that goes into this, and so you have to kind of keep it front of mind, and you have to keep it exciting. And science fiction was kind of a good way to do that, especially for the youth culture. Um, there's just a huge boom in youth publishing and science fiction that mixes in with detective fiction and all kinds of um, popular literature that makes this very, very um, attractive. I, I do talk about this idea of the objects of attraction, airplanes, bombs, uh, science fiction, all the ways uh, in which technology um, itself is, is so aesthetically enticing to, to people. And, and science fiction really plays on that, even when it sells people the image of their own possible death. And that's what's so striking about it. Yeah, I want to talk about nuclear issues later, but I want to go back to what something you said before about, and I want to go back, especially the chapter two aviation and Japan's aerial imagery about the airplane, because I think your focus on pleasure rather than, I think there's a lot of anxiety in, uh, also here, but I think there's uh, an argument uh, on chronology because we tend to see a break between Taisho, Taisho culture and the 30s, right? So the Aerogero nonsense uh, culture and, and the eroticism. And you talk about, Military culture is erotic, about, about the aerial erotic, about the aviation is erotic. So was civil defense sexy in interwar Japan? Is there, is there something here that's continuing from, from the culture, you know, of the Taisho period, maybe? Mm. Well, there was a lot of fear mixed in with the pleasure, uh, especially of seeing bombers from above. Uh, um, and even in some of the diaries of people discussing their how they were drawn to the aesthetics of the bombings and seeing these incredible explosions, knowing that their lives were in danger. There's this very, it's, it's almost like the awe of the sublime, which is a both a mixture of dread and beauty um, at the same time. But, but uh, you know, I think the mixture of, of fear and pleasure is intrinsic to the history of flight itself. It, it starts with the way 
the deterrestrializing, the, the the euphoria around aviation and flight, that um, and the fact that aviation brought war to the home front and is the reason that you have total war because there is no separation there. So it's you can't separate out um, that technology from the fact that it brings the bomber right to the home front uh, very early on. And and um, and the Japanese knew this because they were bombing China. Um, so that you definitely you definitely see that. But um, in terms of the again, it, that the, when did air defense becomes sexy, I, I would just say it kind of goes back to this, this, these objects of attraction that I was talking about, the thrills of bombing, um, seeing them, the thrills of seeing people flying and the idea of uh, deterrestrialization. There's a great quote I use in my book from one of the, the first pilot in, in Italy who talks about returning to the air as a kind of coitus interruptus. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are people who are talking about this as a, a, a kind of a very um, erotic experience. And then airplanes themselves, um, the machinery of them, this fascination machinery and man and machine, cy- cyborgian, pre-cyborgian kinds of things. I have some images that show that. Um, and then in mass culture, we do see this, um, the Edo Guro being the Kuchu Edo, the Kuchu Guro, the idea of mass culture in the sky. So I think there, there are many, many fronts on which it, it is titillating and enticing, whether it's truly sexy, I don't know, but definitely (laughs) titillating and enticing and bodily, very much connected to bodily senses. Yeah. And you write also about like the the darkness, like, you know, during air raid raid drills and like things that happen in the darkness and all this, uh, all those, all all this stuff. It's it's really, you can really see the connection pretty clearly. Um, And it also, again, to go back to what we just said, it also sounds feels so familiar to people. I mean, I still grew up in a tail under the Cold War, and it all sounds and seems so familiar, right? Like I, all those things that, like for example, you write that on gas masks that there are signs of post-human condition of a conflict, right? And I was mainly thinking about zombies and stuff that I teach in my Hiroshima class about you know Japanese anime. And all this stuff, we usually just think about connection to Hiroshima, at least in Japanese culture, but generally speaking, Cold War culture, right? Uh, even in American culture, invasion of the body snatcher was like 1960, like the height of nuclear anxiety. And so I was really excited to li- read about this longer trajectory, right? Uh, and, you know, about people with gas masses, vaguely humanoid, but with distorted features, gas mass figures, that were modern grotesque inhabiting in the urban tropes like zombies after the apocalypse. This is <laughs> exciting stuff. Is there is there really a long longer chronology here? I mean, can you really connect this to the nuclear stuff? Well, yes, I think you can because when you look at the um, the idea of what the gas mask would need why you would need a gas mask. It would be these toxic conditions where humans cannot survive uh, without a prosthesis, without some kind of a technological breathing apparatus. The atmosphere would be toxic. This is what happens in nuclear radiation. It's it's similar. I, I, I don't want to say that it's a teleological one-to-one kind of match, but I also think um, 
you know, the idea of super weapons is something that continues to come up in the 20s and 30s in science fiction. You know, some of the science fiction, H.G. Wells was talking about a nuclear bomb around the turn of the century. These are not new ideas. They were actualized at the end of the war. Um, and this idea of, of, of super weapons that as, a, as an instrument of complete, of total peace, because they will surpass anything that people can do, end up constantly upping the ante of destruction of humanity. Uh, and it's it's kind of timely now with the Barbenheimer uh, trend that we see here with Oppenheimer. That is the central question here is how could people think that a mass weapon of destruction could bring ultimate peace when all it does is continue to present the possibility of the total demise of humanity. And it was known even at that time that the, there's a great quote in the Oppenheimer film about it's, it's not it's near zero near zero chance of destroying humanity but he doesn't know it's not zero <laughs> and i think that's really interesting that they understand that in that in that same moment so i mean that was a, a kind of a roundabout way of answering your question but i do think that we can see lots of precursors to thinking about total annihilation about human beings in a toxic landscape where they can't survive. And gas, gas war was really that first inaugural, um, that, that, that first inauguration to that, that awareness. Yeah. And the to the word total, I think is important here. I mean, I mentioned that uh, both me and Shell are in this project uh, with Bruno Cabanas about like the globalization of total war. And this is this, Gaz, of course, is classic, and it cannot say who's a combatant, who's a non-combatant. It's just gas, right? The same thing as nuclear weapons. And radiation, by the way, was first thought about in Hiroshima as gas. They didn't know what it is, so they thought it uh, released gas. But uh, Shell, you had you had a question. Like, uh, do you want to go? Well, actually, if I can uh, continue on this discussion with a, a question that I didn't ask, but I think uh, Jennifer will be prepared for it anyway. Um, when you talk about the fascination with airplanes, so if, if you were a military historian, which you're not, uh, you would say what you've actually done in part is you've talked about offense and defense and how they're entwined. So the airplane is the offense. Um, and so then we have civil defense. And so Ron asked, is civil defense ever sexy? Um, I have to say, all the study I've done, civil defense is almost never sexy, except for a few cover photos in Nazi journals and Japanese civil defense journals that have pretty women in them. But that's about it. Um, it's, it's, whereas the offense is, is quite sexy. Uh, and I think that's one of the things you've said. Now, what's interesting, you talk about it in passing in your book, because you're not a military historian, you don't quite do it the same way that others might. Um, the fact of the matter is, in the late 1930s, Japan is the world's leading bomber, okay, because of the China War, which we always forget. It's a very global historical war. It's the biggest war between World War I and World War II, and involves massive amount of bombing for the time. You know, after 1940, it'll be superseded by the European, what's happening in the European theater. But up to that, it's the bombing story. And so you have your, um, your Japanese audience quite aware of it. And you talk about exhibitions of it. But I did wonder to what extent um, does a lot of the fascination for the air story in Japan come from the fact that they're actually the bombers? 
Yes, I, I, you're 100% right. And I agree with you about that. The Also, the one thing that the bombing makes very clear is their own vulnerability. And I have some images about strategic bombing maps um, that were circulated very widely as posters and postcards showing Japan, the archipelago, but also the larger empire within the crosshairs of various bombing radii from different outposts within um, East Asia and also from the Pacific, where People forget that the U.S. had its own empire and empires were abutting each other. Um, and so you're right. It's it's absolutely, it's the flip side. I, I don't think you can think of offense and defense as separate from each other. They they are, are complementary and they continue to, to evolve together. And that idea that um, Japan would have been separate from the continent or the war increasingly Aviation makes that distance so small that they are within the crosshairs of an enemy's fighter, um, of, of, of an, an enemy's bombing. And whether they experience it or not, they're seeing visualizations of it. And these exhibitions are showing um, how the, the payloads, what a, how much this will affect both a city and a body, showing what a, a certain payload will do to the human body in, in explosions. So there's a lot of uh, a visual inculcation of that fear and vulnerability within this. And I think, again, to I drag it, I go drag it onto the nuclear stuff, but that's what I do. But it's the same thing that happened in the post-war, right, uh, in America. Even though Americans are the one who inflicted nuclear uh, uh, damage on other countries, immediately they feel vulnerable, right? Immediately there's a John Harris Hiroshima, and there's all these civil defense, like, drills and the, and all this stuff that instill in, in America's the idea of vulnerability, right? The idea that they were preparing to their own destruction. So even though... There's all this mixture between victim and victimizer. And once the victimizer is victimizing other people, he's still immediately anxious about this down to to, to people back home. And when people in the United States Training Bombing Survey, the teams that are sent to Hiroshima, that one of the main guys did a research for the book, he's saying, I look at Hiroshima, but I see Main Street. I see Wyoming Avenue. I see I see America in Hiroshima. So I think it's a it's very, very similar dynamic happening here and remaining with my, so with, again, you know, you just finished a book, you're still kind of in it. I was very interested in, in what you talk about because about uh, pre-traumatic stress, right? Um, right. That, that you talk a lot about it because you don't talk about the air raids again, like, which is totally fine. Right. You talk about the period before the air raids. So what we have here is all of this is like, anticipatory fear, right, that might lead to some kind of psychic damage or preparation for trauma. Um, I was fascinated by this. Maybe I, I want to, if you can maybe expand a little bit about this idea of pre-traumatic stress. Well, I was very influenced by the work of Paul Santamore, who wrote a, a, an incredible book called Tense Future. And we were lucky enough to have him at a workshop that Shell and I uh, participated in. And I, I think reading his work made me understand more about not differentiating between, again, this end result and the period in between, and that the, the period of of preparation and anticipation itself was an experience that could be 
traumatic and fearful. And to focus on that rather than simply in terms of how it culminates in an end result. And as you know, Kerry Caracas has, has done wonderful work. He and David Fedman have done incredible work on the air raids. And I felt like that was really covered. But what I wanted to do was to, to talk about more about this. Why aren't we thinking about a period of anticipation? Why isn't that? What does that do to a culture? And, and because it was over a decade and because it lasted for such a long time in Japan, um, it, and 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 it, and there was so much creative investment in it. There was so much human capital and investment in these preparations. It was worth studying it as its own phenomenon. And that this idea, I think, I think it's um, Paul Santamore uh, quotes Lewis Mumford's idea that the the war that comes or the bombing that comes and the one that's anticipated have their equal. Uh, a trauma, they have an equal shock to the system because the fear of being bombed, anybody who's ever been in a bomb shelter knows that has real psychosomatic you know, effect on your body, especially over time. Uh, Israel's another good example of that too, you know, when, when you live with the bomb hanging over your head. Um, and we're, we're still living that now. Uh, uh, you know, what does it mean when you can't ever go back to a period where you don't feel like there's something hanging over your head? So I did think it was really important to study that, and it was its own phenomenon and, and very, uh, very relevant for what we're experiencing now. Yeah, indeed. And you know, as someone who spent a little bit of time in Bavari, in Bavari shelters, well, not more than a little bit, I can definitely agree. Like, even though if it, even if it doesn't happen, like the anticipation and the fear experience. and the imagination, it's really, tor- it's, yes. it's really torturous. Um, I think, Shell, you had a question on methodology. Yeah, sort of my final question, I think. Um, uh, But uh, your methodology is is awesome. Uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about your analysis up to now, uh, but uh, this is a book about uh, images and documentation from not only Japan, but all over the world in ways that fit together. I mean, again, this is sort of idea of transnational links. And I I was frankly, as I said, in awe that you could find all of these things, put them together so well. Uh, I've tried to do this, but I mean, you, you've really done it. Uh, and so my question is, uh, how, does, uh, how does one human being like you manage to do all that? You obviously had some sort of strategy, uh, and I just would be interested, and I, I, I'm assuming it's a multifaceted strategy. How did you do this so efficiently? Well, I appreciate that you think it's efficient. It felt like it took me a long time to do it. Uh, it, it for me, it's just slow, layered looking. It's a process. And I let visuals lead me and I follow patterns of motifs. I do just tons and tons of, of looking. And I like that discovery process a lot. Uh, it does help that I teach comparatively and I was always with an eye towards other cultures, but actually a lot of the primary documents that I look at, the Japanese are always looking at other places, and I was very attuned to that. Um, The air defense journals are deeply global and transnational when you're looking at them. Every photograph is from France or the United States or from Moscow or uh, lots of images of London. And uh, it's it's inherent in that, um, in, in the looking process. But 
but like you and and all great scholars, I you know I really do try to um, steep myself in in the documents. I, I also uh, try to immerse myself in ephemera. I, I find the ephemera very very illuminating. Um, because it circulates so widely, like postcards and brochures and booklets and advertising and things like that, which which circulated. And so looking at databases and then rummaging through old bookstores and auctions uh, helps quite a lot. Um, one of the great revelations to me was some, this whole culture of commemorative badges that I didn't even know about until I started to look on auction sites and seeing how prevalent fandom poured it into wartime mobilization through decorated, really highly aestheticized badges that people could wear and demonstrate their patriotism. That got me thinking about bodily orchestration. Um, Each image and each object produces a whole set of curiosities and and, um, questions for me. Uh, Another example would be looking at the um, Protection of the Skies magazine, which was issued by the National Air Defense um, Association. They would have these photographs that were uh, breaking down the choreography of movements of proper air defense, including how to throw water. And when I saw that, I immediately thought of some of the photography done by Mari and Moybridge and, you know, in action photography and its original. So I, I do think a lot about genealogies of images and where they go back to, because I think these image producers knew those things and the way they do it. Um but it's it is it's kind of a slow accretion, um, and then I also meet like-minded travelers along the way, collectors. Uh, one collector in particular in Japan who um, was a, a real wealth of of objects and things, and and was not a scholar himself, but really understood the importance of those objects. And spending time talking to him about that was was really valuable. Uh, so I guess the methodology is three hundred and sixty as well as the viewpoint. That's a marvelous answer, and. Uh... I mean, I think it's an inspiration to the entire field, um, not just Japanese studies, but uh, cultural history in general, uh, which is never say, oh, I can't possibly know about other things. Be curious, talk to other people, look at other things, and you will see. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at the book as we speak, and like, I was actually what I'm looking at, because when you talk about something, and I wonder if someone who had to do it, the permissions. So many permissions to to do. I mean, this is yeah, this is this is really so many different collections and so like. Uh, and when we did the castle book, we ended up like as you said, going to old bookstores and basically buying those things on eBay and, and other places. It's the only way you can you can get them. There's a lot of work. Yeah. Right? Oh, it is. Uh, there's, and I'm doing it right now for another project. And it is a labor of love, but you can't do visual storytelling without the visuals. And to me, that's as essential as the text. So I, I put a lot of effort in, into getting those things. And um, I was very fortunate that the Shoah Khan has a lot of objects and they were very generous, as was this collector. And then, as you said, finding a lot of stuff just through auction houses and because because it, it was there, it was out there and you can you can kind of find it in the baskets if you if you go through the dustier the better. There's something about holding the material objects, right? And like it, it's, it's really like this is material from the time and the materiality of those the badges and like I have all those like yeah. sake cups with like the lamp the lamp yeah. shade. 
that lampshade that's in there, I actually have up in my office, and and it and it, it it's just this the way it has the the searchlights beaming down on it. Uh, the, yeah. the kind you of want to yeah want to have it to treat it. I want to keep it material culture and also go off script for one question. My last question. I'm holding again. I'm just pulling books as we talk, and I pulled like Susan, Susan uh, Grazel book, uh, "The Age of the Gas Mask," which came out almost exactly the same time. There seemed to be like a gas mask uh, boom going on right now. So Susan, which is also uh, the same project with, with me and Shell, um, she writes a little a lot about the material culture aspect of it, right? Uh, a gas mask as an object. And you do it also. I mean, think about when you talk about the children magazine that have the children cut up. Can right. you talk a little bit How more? This an aspect we, yeah, this is an aspect we didn't really talk about, the material culture, like uh, the gas mask as an object uh, and how it changes meaning also in the post-war. This is uh, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about more before we finish. Sure. Um, well, there's a big, it, it, it kind of, factors into the how to how DIY make your own gas mask culture and then going back to the Morinaga caramel paper gas masks which were stand-ins that were used and um, masks were a big part of advertising and so making pap- paper gas masks just to understand how how those would have been used in drills obviously they would not protect you <laughs> from real gas but um, but there were a lot of blueprints. In fact, almost all of children's magazines that I found had a DIY section to them, whether it was making scopes or stereographs or various kinds of home technologies, the same way popular mechanics did as well. They were they were geared towards people who were young engineers, people who wanted to make things and, and put them together. And air, uh, the whole culture of aviation, making gliders and how to uh, fly planes. People made paper airplanes. They made balsa wood airplanes. They make a lot of things. And um, I think it's, um, is it Hiromi Mizuno, whose, whose book is very much about um, education and inculcation of learning through hands-on experiential learning. And I do see that very much part of the air defense culture, how air defense gets diffused into children's education, but also popular popular culture as well. And there is something very material. And I do, Sue Grazel's book on World War One. I, I, I found incredibly informative and, and interesting. I didn't know she was working on this book. We were working in parallel, but I'm looking forward to maybe having a conversation with her. You should have a gas uh, panel sometime. Be great. Yes, absolutely. So we're pushing through the 50 minutes mark and I want, I want to wrap up. But before we wrap up, you mentioned you work on another project now on the permissions, which means that you finished. Yes. You want to talk about, wow, that's fast. You want to talk about this and what are you doing now? What, what's, that, what's was the, what's that was the long-standing project that I had been working on on Japanese advertising and commercial design that I've been slowly piecing together for almost 20 years now, and it's finally finished. And so I'm working on that. It's going to come out maybe late next year with Duke University Press. And that's really looking at um, designers and corporate and state sponsors and how they produce mass culture and modern advertising um, in Japan as a part of its modern visual culture, the modern culture, Japanese uh, modernity. 
particularly looking at health and beauty, food and beverage. And then I do have a section on nation and empire, um, the way nation and empire were commodified through certain kinds of um, goods and, and advertising as well. But one thing this does that I stopped short of in, in the gas mask book is this is trans war. It goes up to the 1964 Olympics. And I kind of return to some of the, the themes that of the pre-war in, in the post-war period and, and I hope reclaim pre-war Japanese design, how important it was. Uh, not simply that you get this uh, post-war design world that comes out of nothing. Uh, it really comes out of decades of professionalization. Thank you. This is this sounds really fascinating and I can't wait to, to read this and have you here again. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Elgaran for uh, joining me today. I learned so much from your work so far. It was a pleasure to have you both uh, on a panel here, uh, on, a, on a podcast here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy Thank you. Day.